This episode of the Experimental Brewing Podcast is brought to you by Pico Brew, makers of the Zymatic and Pico Brewing Systems. The brewing systems of the future are here now. Discover how easy and rewarding it is to make great beer with Pico Brew. And by Craftmeister and BTF Iota 4. When you absolutely positively need to make sure every surface is clean, bust out the cleaner with professional power and home brewer safety. Make better beer with better chemistry. Choose Craftmeister. And by NicoBrew.com. NicoBrew.com is your one-stop hop shop where Nico and his kilt take care of all your hop needs with nitrogen flush mylar and only $5 to ship anywhere in the U.S. and with great international rates. If you're a pro brewer or a homebrew shop owner, get a commercial account at pro.nicobrew.com to take full advantage of Nico and his guild. And by the American Homebrewers Association, a community of more than 46,000 beer lovers. Since 1978, the AHA and its members have worked to promote the best hobby there is, homebrewing. Join us today for six issues of Zymergy Magazine, money-saving AHA member deals, and access to exclusive events and competitions. And remember, relax, don't worry, have a homebrew. Why Yeast Laboratories has provided fresh, premium liquid yeast cultures worldwide since 1986. Choose from our product collection of ale, lager, German wheat, Belgian ale, wine, malolactic, or wild and sour strains for your next fermentation creation. We're here to help you ferment premium products like the professional. Why Yeast. And by you, our listeners. Go to experimentalbrew.com to help support us. Click on the Patreon link to donate whatever amount you like to the podcast and our charities. Click on the Brew Your Own Magazine link to subscribe to BYO, or click on the AHA link to join the American Homebrewers Association. Part of the proceeds from those will go to help support the podcast. And thanks for your support. Welcome to Experimental Brewing with Denny and Drew. I'm Denny Kahn. And I'm Drew Beecham. Together, we're the authors of Experimental Homebrewing, Mad Science in the Pursuit of Great Beer, and a recent hit book that's sweeping the nation, Homebrew All-Stars. Between the two of us, we have nearly 40 years of homebrewing experience. Now, I'm the guy known for weird beer and strange ideas. And I'm the guy who's known for questioning the conventional wisdom and coming up with ways to check it out. All right, on today's episode, we're going to head to the pub to discuss to the beer life. We're actually getting back to our regular format, folks. Almost, not entirely, but hey, we're almost there. Uh, and then it's off to the lounge where we talk to Kevin and Shay England, the duo behind San Francisco's newest homebrew store slash brewery, Fermit Drink Repeat. Wow, those guys have uh, set themselves up for a lot of work there. And finally, we're going to hit you up with another round of Ask Denny and Drew before we finally close out the show with our quick tip of the week. Uh, before we get into all that, we want to remind you of a few ways you can support the podcast. You can go to our website, experimentalbrew.com, and you can click on the uh, AHA link to join the American Homebrewers Association and receive Zymergy Magazine. You can click on the Brew Your Own link to subscribe to Brew Your Own Magazine. When you do either one of those through our website, we get a, a little bit of money from that, and that helps to support the podcast and our charity. 
Now, what charity, you say? We had just finished up a really successful fun drive for Freedom Service Dogs, and we are moving on to a new charity. The charity for the second half of the year comes at the suggestion of our Igor Robert Holloway, uh, the Children's Tumor Foundation. We checked out the rating. This looks like a really good place. Uh, the foundation supports research into the causes and treatment of pediatric neurofibromatosis. Oh boy, I thought I could say that. <laughs> neurofibromatosis. Pediatric neurofibromatosis. So, uh, it, you know, again, I think that we have a real winner here, an organization doing some great work that can use some help, huh? Yeah, you know, it's uh, dogs and children, you know, puppies, uh, puppies of all sorts. They all need our help. <laughs> That's right. And uh, so please, please go to the website, click on the Patreon link, contribute whatever you feel like, and uh, we will get a nice donation off to the Children's Tumor Foundation. Yeah, And just to give you guys an idea, I mean, Denny, you just heard back, you know, from uh, Freedom Service Dogs, right? Right, yeah. Um, they uh, they left a message on my phone. I've been trying to get back to talk to them, but uh, uh, the the donation that you guys all made out there was highly appreciated and highly useful for them. So thanks to all of our listeners for kicking in for that, and uh, let's keep it going now with the Children's Tumor Foundation. Ramen, <laughs> indeed. So I guess it's time to. Uh, Head off to the pub and talk about the beer life, huh? I think so. All right, I'll meet you there. Never wait for fruit to be in season again. With Vintner's Harvest fruit purees and wine bases, you can enjoy consistent quality fruit which was picked at the peak of ripeness. F.H. Steinbart Company, the nation's oldest homebrew store, recommends grapefruit or tart cherry purees for your next sour or wild beer. So make sure to ask for them at your local homebrew supply store where Brewcraft USA products are sold. And remember, not all fruit purees are equal. If it's not in the Vintner's Harvest can, it's not the same. Okie dokie, beer fans. Drew and I are sitting here in the pub having a couple beers. Uh, I am drinking the Eagle Harbor IPA from Bainbridge Island Brewing. I was up in the Seattle area and on Bainbridge Island a couple weeks ago and brought back a growler. Wonderful beer. Uh, about as crystal clear as any beer you will ever see in your life. And we're going to have an interview with the brewmaster and owner there, uh, Russell Everett, coming up in the next uh, couple shows. So what are you having today, Drew? Well, uh, I got to go to Eagle Rock Brewing Company, which, of course, is my local brewery, uh, this past weekend. And got to hang out with uh, Jason Petros, a.k.a. JP, a.k.a. The Brewing Network. Uh, and while we were hanging out there uh, doing some beer, the Eagle Rock folks were kind enough to gift us a couple of bottles of their brand new beer that hasn't been released yet, uh, called Zegermeister, which is a sour blonde ale, uh, aged in wood with pluots and mangoes. And it's named after the guy Whoa. who invented the pluot. And the pluot is a cross between a plum and what? And an apricot. Oh yeah, sure. Of course. 
Well, I can't say I've ever had one, but it sounds delicious. The, uh, they are very delicious. I still just want to know what the hell was going through his head when he said, you know what would be a really great idea? Let's blend a, a plum and an apricot. <laughs> yeah, right. Well, kind of like the first guy to eat an oyster, you know? Who, who the uh, hell thought of that? I guess the uh, the topic today is we are back to more brewery sales and... Uh, you know, I know we said we weren't going to talk about this anymore, but hey, it's been months, so I, th- I think that people will have forgotten we promised that. One of them hits close to you this time. Yeah, that's true. Um, the, I, uh, I'm in the Eugene, Oregon area. We have a brewery here called Hop Valley. It's been around for, oh, maybe eight, ten years. Uh, started by a former home brewer by the name of Trevor Howard and his father and a couple other investors. Started out in a former brew pub location, kind of uh, northeast of Eugene. Uh, did pretty well there and uh, built another facility down in what we call the fermentation district, uh, where we, uh, close to downtown Eugene, we have a lot of breweries and distilleries and wineries set up. And just going great guns. Uh, huge brewing system and uh, all along they have kind of appeared to be uh, uh, set for acquisition you know they were like trying to it appeared as if they were trying to get big so that they would be a uh, an attractive target for someone and uh, it just happened this week 10th and Blake which is the craft beer wing of Miller Coors bought a majority interest in Hop Valley and there's a lot of talk around town about it. Uh, you know, the local paper released uh, some statements from local brewery owners, one of whom said, oh, no, this is uh, not a good thing. And the other one who said, well, I'm real happy for the owners and the money that they got. So I guess those are, those are the two sides of the issue there. Uh, but it's happened. Uh, it's struck close to home. And uh, the other the other one that uh, Tenth and Blake has acquired this week is Terrapin, right? Yeah, so uh, Terrapin down in uh, Athens, Georgia, I think. Definitely Georgia. Uh, it had kind of been a stalwart of the Georgia beer scene for a long, long time. And years ago, they had entered into like a 25% uh, ownership agreement with Tenth and Blake. Uh, you know, and at the time, it was like, oh, look, you know, this is just so that we can get the money so we can expand. So blah, 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 blah. Beer won't change. Quality won't change. We're still in charge. You know, the usual uh, song and dance. And now, of course, uh, last week, Tenth and Blake announced that they had acquired the whole company, Lock, Stock, and Barrel. So <laughs> one of the things I think is interesting is I suspect we're going to see more of this particular pattern, you know, with the kind of the Terrapin buyout, because I think... Terrapin was absolutely dead silent on all their social media, all their you know channels out into the world about the acquisition, and, and it basically leaked out from the Tenth and Blake side. And part of me wonders if this sort of like gradual partial acquisition followed by a full acquisition isn't a sort of a pattern that that we'll see as a way of softening the blow to make it so that craft beer drinkers don't get like as you know. Yeah, head up about the fact that somebody big is buying their local brewery, right? Oh, well, you know, I can totally buy it. It's just, it's investment and they're, and they're using it to make the beer better, blah, 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 blah. Yeah, and that's that's definitely uh, one of the, the worries about the Hop Valley thing. Uh, right now, Tenth and Blake uh, bought a majority interest, but, uh, you know, does it mean that they will go ahead and uh, eventually end up having the whole ball of wax? 
Uh, who knows? We'll have to wait and see. I do find it interesting because, you know, Eugene is not a, a huge beer market. So uh, it's hard to say what kind of, of backlash or effect it would really have if they did. But, yeah. Yeah, well, but I mean, it's a, it, it seems to be the power play at the moment is for these big breweries, which, of course, now these two breweries are looking like they're going to become one brewery. Uh, right. <laughs> uh, with the uh, DOJ uh, effectively approving the deal uh, for the merger between uh, Anheuser-Busch and Bev and Miller Coors with lots of restrictions attached to it, but uh, still... They're, they're on track for becoming one company now. Uh, and, you know, you talked about, okay, so what, what sort of changes might end up happening in the company? And, you know, every, we've seen the script that happens every time one of these things, ha- uh, one of these sales happens where, you know, look, obviously the big companies are trying to get regional players so that they can build regional brand loyalty type things, uh, which is the reason to go for like a Hop Valley or a 10 Barrel. But... You know, every time they do it, they try out the same line. Oh, the beer's not going to change. We're still in charge. You know, we still have the vision, et cetera, et cetera. And we saw that with everybody's uh, favorite maker of uh, multiple flavors of fruited IPAs, uh, Ballast Point, who last year got bought for the sparkling amount of money of $1 billion by Constellation Brands, a.k.a. Corona. Uh and, you know, they trotted out the same company line back then. Well, now it turns out in the past week at the same time that 10th and Blake was announcing all these acquisitions that five of the top officers of Ballast Point, including the founder and the head brewer, have all left the company now. That's very interesting. And I haven't heard anything about whose idea it was that they leave, you know? Well, <laughs> you understand what I'm saying Yeah, here? well, I mean, it, it, it looks like at least the couple of the other head executives, the ones that were first announced, those all looked like they were part of planned transitions, right? You know, it's like, okay, great, you guys have helped shepherd us, helped, helped shepherd us through this merger and, and initial growth phase. Now get the hell out of here. Uh, <laughs> the other one uh, with the founder and head brewer, you know, uh, was Jack and uh, Yusuf, it looks like part of their deal had been originally that they sold the brewery, but they didn't sell the distilling operations. And they had an agreement from Constellation Brands to allow them to set up a a separate distilling company. I think it's called Cutthroat Spirits. And uh, the information that we saw uh, that I saw uh, coming out online in the last over the weekend was basically Constellation felt like their new distilling pursuits were uh, a distraction from the company, and so therefore effectively told them to uh, knock it off or leave. And so uh, you can imagine what you can do so if they you left. haven't. Well, I mean, look, if, you, if you've if you just gotten a sale for $1 billion, that's a whole lot of FU money. So Yeah, that's right. Yeah, yeah. It's like, why, why are you working anyway? Yeah. So... There we go. Uh, for all the all those times that you see that line trotted out, that oh, nothing is going to change. The beer quality will improve. We'll have access to better tools and whatnot. Just remember what happened with Ballast Point here this past week. And I don't know. Again, yeah, I, I love Sculpin. I love Sculpin back in the days before it became uh, grapefruit Sculpin, pineapple Sculpin, habanero Sculpin, watermelon Sculpin, watermelon this. You know, what random fruit yeah. can we find on the produce shelf? But at the same time, I'm not entirely surprised by this. Yeah, right. I, you know, it, it's one of those things where you can kind of see it coming, and especially with the, the money that these guys have received, it's like, okay, screw you, I'm gone. Okay, so with that cheery news out of the way, 
<laughs> we're gonna uh, yeah, we're gonna take our beers and we're gonna head over to the lounge and uh, we're gonna check out Drew's conversation with Kevin and Shay England of uh, Ferment Drink Repeat in San Francisco. Well, here we are in the lounge, sitting in these comfy chairs with our beers, uh, no cigars today, and we're going to uh, check out the results of Drew's trip to San Francisco. Yeah, so uh, I got I got a chance to uh, travel for work, because naturally that's what we do. And, of course, if I'm going to go to work someplace, then I'm also going to go check out beer things. And uh, Kevin England, uh, is, who is the co-founder of Ferment Drink Repeat, uh, actually kind of made it a little bit of a splash in the news about, I think, a year or two ago when he did his Kickstarter for the brewery. And originally it was going to be a nano brewery with a homebrew shop attached to it. And now it's become like a full-fledged brew still with a homebrew shop attached to it. And they have an absolutely awesome space that's all going to be designed around uh, education and exploration and getting people to uh, you know really dig into the beer. And they're also in a really, really cool location, uh, kind of about as far outside the city of San Francisco as you can get. So I got a chance to sit down with uh, Kevin and his lovely wife, Shay, and we had a little bit of a conversation uh, about uh, what it takes to open up a homebrew shop slash brewery and uh, what they were hoping to see. Now, when I recorded this uh, segment, it was before they were officially open, but they are now officially open. So if you are in that area, you should definitely go check out from it. Drink, repeat. So I'm Kevin England and my wife, Shay, and I are opening this homebrew shop and a small brewery in San Francisco. And we're happy to be part of the show. Thanks for inviting us. Well, thank you. Uh, thank you for taking the time. So, real quick, the the, the whole concept here, uh, ferment, drink, repeat. And uh, you guys have been, uh, if I remember correctly, it's been about two years in, in planning, right? And getting right open. Right. Correct. Yeah. Yeah. Well, about, I mean, from business plan, initial thoughts, it's probably three years. But then we've been renting the space here for a couple of years. <clears throat> Excuse me. Um, more than two years ago, we had a crowdfunding uh, campaign through Crowdbrood, which was uh, coincided with SF Beer Week of 2014. And being naive like I was, and Shay was telling me better of it, but uh, I thought we would have been open you know, a long time ago. But we just got our first beers brewed in the last two weeks, and so we're looking at a, a May-June opening here, or late May opening, so it's been a process. Well, I was going to say, yeah, we passed by the Texas that are doing their bubble bubble, right. so that, that's kind of always nice to see. Yeah. But now, even though the brewery itself isn't open yet, you guys have a little homebrew shop open. We right? do. Yeah. Yeah, so we opened that on um, St. Patrick's Day of this year, and um, it's been an interesting ride because we have all this other stuff going on. So we have our homebrew shop open for limited hours, and um, but people seem to really uh, enjoy where we're located because there's really not a lot between Los Altos and um, other part of the city. The other part of the city, there's another homebrew shop um, out in the Richmond. So we're sort of in between the two of those, and so because of that, people have 
found us and found us to be closer than uh, many other homebrew shops that are available to them. I was going to say, just for uh, our listeners who don't know San Francisco geography, and I barely know any of it because, <laughs> after all, I live in Los Angeles, yeah. the antithesis of San Francisco in some ways. Um, we are south of what everybody thinks of as San Francisco, right? This is what San Bruno? No, well, we're actually in San Francisco. We're, it's confusing because there right. was a San Bruno okay. south of here, but we're on San Bruno Avenue. Ah, okay. And we're literally on the border of the city, and the next city south of here is called South San Francisco. So it's, okay. it's provided some confusion, but we're technically in the city limits of San Francisco. But you're, you're basically about as far south as you can get in the city without... Quite, yeah, quite nearly. Right. And we're right as um, where 101 and 280 meet, mm -hmm. so we're convenient like to the highways um, coming through the city as well. So yeah. we're on the south edge of... San Francisco proper, hmm. not South San Francisco. Yeah. Well, I was going to say, I mean, and it's real, real super convenient if you're coming from the airport and you need to right. stop to get your fermentation supplies before you go to your hotel. Right. That's right. Yeah. <laughs> well, it is. So we up here, we say the peninsula, and that's just the point south of us down that stretch of land that goes down to uh, San Jose, basically. And we're pretty convenient to those people on the peninsula because they can get on. 101 or 280 and, and be here in a matter of 10 or 15 minutes so it's pretty good and they don't have to actually get into the heart and the traffic and the annoying parts of the city we're kind of on the fringe so it's it's working out well we've had a lot of positive response from people who are excited to have another shop to come to so it's always good to have your options yeah. right yeah. and so I mean, and it seems like it seems like having the homebrew store you know gives you guys the opportunity to build up community presence before the brewery itself actually is fully online. Yeah. Yeah. And another thing that I think is really convenient is once we do have the brewery open, you know, they can come and shop for their home brew supplies and also have a beer at mm -hmm. the tap room. So that's unique to us than any other um, home brew shop kind of in the Bay Area. Yeah. Uh, we don't, I don't know any other brewery homebrew shop combo. So, you know, I think people will find that to be it provides them more of an experience. They come, they shop, they lollygag and have a beer. So, or people will find interest in homebrewing. They'll come and have a beer and go, "Oh, you have a homebrew shop." So it might spark interest in the other direction as well. well yeah, I mean, in, in some ways, it's kind of an older school model. Like you see Bell's in Michigan, right, in Kalamazoo. They still to this day have their homebrew shop mm -hmm. off to the side. And you saw places in well, like, Ballast Point started as a yeah, home brew, home brew mart, and now they have four locations in and a billion dollars. And they just got a huge. But well, we don't really envision. I mean, we just want to get doors open, be a local community-based little neighborhood brewery here, and have fun with it. And but yeah, a lot of. Uh, we're not the first to do it for sure, but we're the first in the city that's going to be a full-time homebrew shop and full-time brewery uh, mm -hmm. simultaneously. Oh, yeah. well, that's cool. And, I, and like I said, I, I like that. I like that you guys have that vision for interplay because I think, if I remember correctly, you were also talking uh, as you're brewing beers in the brewery and releasing them up to the tap room on, just on the other side of the, the homebrew area, yep. that those recipes would also become available. Right. And I think in kind of, you know, your your work in experimental brewing and such, I think one of the challenges homebrewers have is controlling conditions or having the patience to do a lot of experiments. So they may want to try a new yeast or hop or something, but they also have a 
you know, they promise their brother that they're going to make their, you know, the porter that they love for the wedding coming up. You know, so brew days get mm -hmm. eaten up and they don't necessarily get to do all the research they want to. So we hope to be a lab in a sense that when the beers are on tap, we tell exactly what ingredients were used, if it's a single hot beer maybe, or if we might split a batch or do two different yeast strains and try to, you know, advance that educational level for homebrewers without them having to do all the legwork and then they can walk, you know, 20 feet over and go, I really like that yeast, I'm going to try it in my next batch, or they go, I don't really like it, I'm going to stick with what I know or something, but they didn't have to go through the, you know, the, the brew day and wait it out and get to their end result only to find they have five or more gallons of some beer that they really weren't such a fan of so they could, you know, cut that educational level down or time frame down. Well, that's good. Yeah, and so that's kind of taking it a little bit further than where you see a lot of, uh, a lot of breweries doing kind of their single hop series. Right, right. right. So now, now this gives, hey, you know, we have even more exposure and we have the home brand directly there. Right. So that's kind of cool. Um, all right, so traditional question I always ask everybody because it's one of my favorite. Uh, what is your favorite curse word? I know hers. <laughs> well, right, I may have changed it. Yeah, well, <laughs> in the next couple days, but yeah. so what's yours? I'd like to actually. I know one. I'm going to steal her thunder. <laughs> <laughs> yours is the f bomb, probably. You're just. Well, I'll tell you oh. what my my go to one is, and I'll tell you what my very brand new favorite is. So you can start with yours. Well, I know the brand new favorite. I was going to use that. Okay. So I'll let you say it. Uh, so my favorite traditional swear word is fucker. You know, describes pretty much everything. A person can be a fucker or a computer. We're going to ask that a little fucker. I love that word. Yeah. My new favorite word is bitch hole. <laughs> Which is brought to us by our friend's young daughter who... <laughs> Basically combined a couple of things. So I was going to say my I tend to like creative uses of like non-standard. So like not fucker, but it'd be like fuck stick or something <laughs> random where you combine it. So hole when we hear this little girl say it, just became a new favorite. Like I have to figure out how to use that often and in you know, find the opportunity. And let's qualify little girl. This little girl will leave her name out of the uh, equation. She is learning how to speak very well. She had trouble speaking and she's mm -hmm. finally learned how to speak really well. So, you know, she's been around people, adults, and adults swear from time to time. And she picked up a few words. Well, now that she can speak clearly, yeah. she has made her own. So that was what she started saying the last couple of days. And her mom was, excuse me? And she she kept saying it, so now that has become my new favorite because I just think it's brilliant. So made up creative use of swear words, curse words. I, I like that. It's it's an ingenious crafting yes. of language. Yes. Well, and see, for me, I was uh, I, I was mostly deaf until I was four, mm -hmm. so I didn't speak before that. Right. Mm -hmm. And then after after I started to hear and could speak, uh, you you can hear my Talk to my mom, she will tell you I never stopped speaking in science. And yeah, apparently I also was very creative with. Well, and you know, in her defense, bitch is a female dog, technically not a swear word, and yeah. whole is, is also not a swear word. Yeah. So none of it is technically a curse word. Right. You, 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 know? are, you are technically correct, which is the best sort of correct. Right, <laughs> right. 
And when put together and out of the mouth of babes, it just rings like very shockingly awesome. So it's pretty cool. <laughs> All, right. All right. So now that we've got the, the cursing out of one, let's talk uh, biography, right? Because yep. you all have a, a biography behind beer and how you got here. Yep. So uh, let's spill the deets. Uh, so I was in the Army for, well, I retired from the Army in 2014, but back in. 96 I was playing rugby for a team and our uh, after game and after practice bar we'd go to this little German bar and there was a homebrewing kits in the corner and I just randomly bought one one day and so started making really bad beer at home for a while and ran around that time Shay I met well Shay and I got married shortly thereafter so she married me with a homebrewing habit and it just kind of continued throughout all of our moves and in the army and I would change equipment or change whatever I had to configure to the new brew space every two or three years and just stuck with it and then in our last assignment here in San Francisco we kind of transitioned and said let's uh, do this for our next career so I went to the American Brewers Guild uh, school in the 2014 as well and kind of tried to hone in the craft a little more and then we've been working on this project for the last couple of years so and Shay's entering the beers through me like uh, coming along to she's front of the house stuff she's good she's good at the bar front serving beers and everything she's the face yes so, yeah. it did, you don't want it to be mine for sure <laughs> so yeah I mean I had always been I've always liked vodka and different types of liquor vodka and gin in particular and you know I was never a beer drinker really and then you know I I like wine too and it's taken me a longer time in our relationship to sort of warm up to beer but I feel like in the last 10 years or so I've really it's my taste and my palate for it has really evolved and I've really come to appreciate it far better than I ever ever thought you know so people who um, say they don't like beer or maybe in a relationship with someone who is brewing beer and oh I don't like beer I think I feel like if you give it time and you you know keep trying it and keep trying it you get used to it and you find out beers that you love so that's so he made me fall in love with beer all right well so then that's the big question mm -hmm. what was the magical beer was there a magical beer or was it just general sledgehammer I, I think no I, I I think that I'm not a hoppy, I don't love a lot of IPAs. Mm -hmm. I will drink one from time to time or have small amounts of from time to time. But for me, um, I can't remember one particular beer of his that really turns me on, but he was really considerate in our relationship and said, I'll make you a beer you might like. And so he started with, um, he used to call it the Shea Berry beer. So he'd make a beer once a year, add some berries into it, kind of giving it more of a, more palatable for someone who may not love beer and so it started there and then you know he'd make uh, beers during uh, Christmas time or during Halloween with those sort of you know fall flavors in them and that sort of started like oh I like those and so it sort of evolved from him really including me into what he think I might like and saying you know I want you to enjoy this so here's a beer I've made for you so it was more, I'm tasting the love at first and less of the beer. <laughs> and now I like beer. So. <laughs> Look, the magical ingredient is love. <laughs> right. 
right? Yeah, it is so. Yeah. Well, and so, well, that, that brings me back to the, the rugby and getting into the bearing thing. <clears throat> One, I'm shocked, shocked that rugby team would have beer, beer involved. We were, I think we were the first to do it. Ever. <laughs> <laughs> People have followed us there. You see it all over the place. Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, I've never met a rugby, uh, uh, rugby player who drinks. I was doing a set of rugby, uh, rugby drinker who plays, and that'd be a little too on the nose. Yeah. Um, so do you remember what the first beer was that you brewed? Yeah, it was a, uh, a porter that's been my, our son's middle name is Porter. For that reason. <laughs> and uh, like every time I've adjusted systems, it seems I always just do an inaugural porter. And I was going to do that here at FDR for our brewery, but I couldn't get the yeast in time, so I had to do something different for the for the first time in a long time. But yeah, I still have the notes to that uh, very first brew ever. And as I was looking through them, I think it had like, so this is 96, there wasn't nearly as much literature out there. No, if there was internet, it was, uh, I wasn't on it for sure. So I was kind of flying blind and I looked back at the little notes I had scrolled out and I think it had like two pounds of corn sugar in it, you know, and it was, yeah, not a, not a great first effort, but I also think if I looked at my, looking at my notes, if I'm reading them correctly, I may have, and this, it's a long time ago, so we can't confirm or deny, I may have thrown the yeast in the boil, <laughs> not understanding the process and then confused as to why it wasn't uh, kicking off, and I tried to chill it, uh, we had, it had snowed, so I had it. The fermenter, uh, I had it, or the, the boil bucket, or pot out in the snowbank, trying to get this thing down the temp. Then, and, I don't know, it was a, it was a mess. So, but I didn't dump it. A friend of ours said he liked it enough that he had most of it. And was good with that, and I just kept going from there. So, and so, I think people underestimate the importance to a new brewer who yeah. is going to become a long-term brewer. Right. That friend who will drink anything. Right. <laughs> yeah. get, get rid of this. I need my bottles so I can bottle the next batch. Wait, wait, wait. Is this cold, yeah. alcoholic, and free? Yeah. I'm there. It's like a friend with a truck. Exactly. You know how many friends you have when you own a truck? Yeah. That's the same concept. Yeah, there's a good reason I've never owned a truck. Right. <laughs> yeah, I don't like moving that much. Yeah. All right. So, um, this, this is one of my favorite questions because uh, to ask brewers. Uh, Omitting the word balance, mm-hmm. describe your bourbon philosophy. Omitting the word that balance. I can't say now. Yes. Brewing philosophy. I think uh, for me, it's about foundations and understanding what your what each ingredient's bringing to the beer, and part of the staying connected to home brewing or having the home brew shop here is if we can or as we develop our recipes and put them out for the public or for brewers to try to to use um, I want them to understand like it's it's uh, where was I going with this this is tough Drew I can't use that word (laughs) so well I think I think a good foundation is is important. So, be, as a new homebrewer, before you start 
doing your experimental things or doing getting too crazy with weird ingredients and such, I think you should understand what each part of the process is, is doing or bringing to uh, that profile. So um, I tend to start my recipe formulation with what I want the final tasting and aroma experience to be. And then I back plan it from there, like, well, how am I going to coax those things into it? And it may not be that B word. It may be, I want it to be, you know, super hot focus or super multi, or I want the yeast to shine or, you know, so um, if it's not, uh, if it's not, if I can't use that B word, then it's drinkability and that you want someone, when they get to the end of it, to want another one of them, or that they could have another one of them because however you brought it all together or however I bring it all together, that taste and experience I was shooting for, they enjoyed it that it's palatable and they would look at another, another glass. So, like we do a Belgian orange chocolate stout and my inspiration was those chocolate covered oranges you get around the holidays mm -hmm. and um, I've literally had people without seeing any literature or copy on it or any of my descriptors they're just tasting it you know and they come and they've said that exact phrase to me this reminds me of those chocolate covered oranges you get around Christmas you're, you're, talk, you're, you're talking the ones that you just slam yeah. down on the counter and it falls into chocolate like, you know yeah. just one of those things you take inspiration from everyone you see that and go that probably make a pretty cool beer and then I started thinking how I would do that and ended up going through a series of Belgian yeast to kind of pick one that really I think makes it shine and so to have someone come back through and say that's the exact experience they had whether it was now I can use balance whether it was balanced or not whatever they got the flavor profile that I was shooting for and that's to me was a success so now, I'm trying to remember you did that one as a homebrew as well right yeah because I, I think I've had it before and I think because I think you had it in competition you probably had a bad version of it because I've had uh, I've gone through different iterations of how I wanted to put the orange and chocolate in and some of them definitely worked better than others and I actually entered some in comps to get that additional feedback of I don't think this is really working and I want to see if other judges agree with me and so that's been valuable so now I'm kind of settled into what I think is a, a good approach to it that I've been very happy with and as it comes out the very first time I brewed it I had uh, I split it and did an English yeast and, a, and like the Chimay yeast and then I the Belgian yeast was just far better. It just made it all shine better. And then I ran through a series of, well, let's try all these other Belgian yeasts. And I came back full circle and said, the best one's been the first one we ever, ever had. So, so that's the approach we're going to take here as we try to wrap it up to a seven barrel batch. So, so can you, since the listeners will obviously ask this question, yeah. can, you, can you share what the magic is for the orange and the chocolate flavor? Yeah, I actually am just using uh, extracts. These, mm -hmm. uh, um, I believe the company's called Star K. But I've tried doing like the orange with, uh, there is a little bit of sweet orange peel in the, in the finish of the boil too. But like, I've had beers that you try to do a bunch of orange rind. Orange can be tricky to deal with as a fruit if you're mm -hmm. really using it. And so I just, 
this extract is, I mean, the label is 100%. Well, I mean, there's, it's, an, it's extract, so there's, it doesn't have anything else in it. It's just orange, though. So it's really, it's, it's really quite powerful, though. So going over the top is pretty easy, so you got to be careful with it. And then they make a chocolate extract uh, syrup, uh, not a syrup, but an extract as well that I've found has worked better than Cocoa powder always clumps up and ends up falling out of solution and looks really bad in the glass and then uh, nibs and different things that just, other people love them, I haven't ever been a huge fan of them, so when I came across this other extract I was like, I, I like that, so that's the approach we're going now. And, that's, and that would be the, as we make that recipe available, that would be what we would recommend if you wanted to recreate it to go get those that brand of extracts and use it and flavor to your liking. You know, so, mm -hmm. and now, do you ever get into the brewery show? No, I don't very often. I want to more. You know, I feel like during this experience, you, you said, were there the other day. I was there the other day. She I was, was doing it. She was doing all the paddling and stirring the mash as I was. I was the heavy. And then she did some raking, so I was like, I like this. Uh, <laughs> I like these jobs. This is good. So. I'm really, well, I'm like a doer. Like, I like to, you know, like, I will. I like to stir. I like to, like, take all of the uh, spent grains out and put it in the trash. Like, I like to, that's the stuff. Like, I'm handy. Since we had uh, <laughs> this project going, I would invite her to say, well, you want to brew with me? I'd be at home still. And she'd say, no, I want my first batch to be on a big system. So that, she held true to that. <laughs> she was, we were brewing Why do I want to do it on that Jimmy Rig yeah. system? We have, like, you know, a lot of money into a big system. Why not start big? Yeah. So I plan on uh, starting to brew in the near future, for sure. I have interest in it. I think I just feel like family life and kids, and we've always had to juggle, you know, hobby versus responsibility, for, you know, so we both can't be in the same place at one time a lot, especially when the boys were younger. So now I feel like they're at an age where we have more freedom. And so, you know, freedom to open up a, a new place and have a new baby, because this, mm -hmm. this is our new child, who mm -hmm. <laughs> takes up all of our attention. Yeah. So, yeah. Well, so two thoughts. One, um, it's really great that you consider yourself a doer because, frankly, if somebody came into my brewery and said, uh, here, I'll, I'll handle the grains for you, I'd be like, yes, please, thank you. Yes. <laughs> right. Awesome. And then um, the, the other one is, so now, given that you're, that you're starting to set foot in the brew house, have you, have you put any thoughts to a proto-beer that, you, that you'd want to make? You know, Kevin won't let me do one. I love sours. No, no, no. He won't let me finish my sentence. Yeah. Like, he won't let me do... I love sour beers. I would love to do a sour beer. Um, you know, I, I know that you can't because then you have to dedicate, you know... Well, we could do a kettle and, sour. Yeah, so sour we could do a smaller sour. sour. Um, I would love to do a sour. Um, but that's I won't rule out, like, a kettle sour. We could kettle sour, like, Kevin, a Berlin or Vice or something like that. Kevin, the love? Where's well, the yeah. I did, well, your last podcast, I think one of your recent ones, you had Barrett, uh, the mm -hmm. Sour Guru. Yeah, yep. that, that was it's that was scary to me. I'm not a. I've tried. I've had. Uh, I've had barrels at home. I've done some sour. I've never had great success because I've lost track of them. Like they've been in the barrel way too long, and they've mm -hmm. been a little five gallon barrel. So there's the surface area. To too much oil. Too much oxidation. 
over the top and then I even brewed another batch and tried to blend it and then that sat in the fermenter bucket for what turned out to be another half a year or more. I'm just I just I would because I would try to keep all the equipment separate, um, I just would never get to it because then as we were bringing FDR to life, we were doing a bunch of charity events and different things and so I was brewing regularly at home quite a bit, but it was all like every beer was almost earmarked, so I was busy with that. I just never Never really got into the sours enough to do it justice because I think the guys who do it and blend them and make great sours, like, you need to put in the time and, and do it right, and I don't know that I have. So. Well, it, it's a different rhythm. Yeah. Yeah, and like, yeah, exactly to your point, like, whenever I do sours, I have to, I have to really fight my, my tendency to kind of walk away from it and, yeah. and forget that it's in existence and then go, don't crap. Yeah, right. I've, I've exceeded the the length. And I, I, I swore I was going to be better. I put another beer in the barrel, and I was. And now that one's I think spent a year, and it should have only been maybe three months or something. But it's. Uh, but no, I. I mean, post ferment or fermenting sour is not something we have the space here that I'd be comfortable doing, or we don't have a way to do that, and I don't want to bring those things into the brew house, especially just getting started, that's not something I want to tackle or try to tempt fate in that way. But uh, yeah, I, I, I mean, I've done a Berliner Weisser at home with uh, well, sour in the mash, but I can sour the kettle pretty quickly too. Gay East has some good products for doing that. Yeah, so. I, I, think it, I think it sounds like this might be an important step for your marriage. Yeah. <laughs> well, so a thing on maybe. Yeah, 20 year marriage goes down the tubes because he won't, won't make it sour. sour. Uh, so. I, I do like Saison. So I like beers that tend to have a little sourness to them mm -hmm. um, that appeals to my palate more. Um, and so I, I, I've kind of been thinking since raking out the grains, I have a little time and stirring the mash, uh, perhaps a, a Saison of some a sort. Saison. A Saison. A Saison. See how that works. So. Um, well, and I was gonna say that it, it makes me laugh because you have I think three beers on uh, three beers on right now that are fermenting a session IPA, right. a your Belgian orange chocolate, right. and a saison. And I've, I've been running around uh, thinking recently that it seems like every brewery that opens now, uh, you know, it's no longer hey I've got my my pale ale, my wheat, my stout. It's right. I've got my IPA, I've got my other IPA, and I've got my saison. Right. <laughs> So at least you have the the, the bunch of stuff in there. Right. there. Well, I think yeah. that's the beauty. You know, uh, you know, he's right about the system. It's like being kosher. You know, you have to keep it all separate. Nothing can touch anything else. So since we don't have that, but other than not doing sours, I feel like Kevin's our his strength is just saying I'm. We're not beholden to having a flagship beer, and we're going to always have these beers on tap. You know, we. We own this brewery partly because we he wants to experiment and say no I feel like doing this or I feel like doing that you know we we're not um, we'll have some beers that I think we'll always have a few but for the most part the rest can just be whatever he's feeling on the, the whim and what's the point of um, we we don't plan right now going into production so it's not as if we have to create that sort of um, following about a particular beer mm -hmm. so I like the freedom that he has to just brew whatever he wants minus the sours. So the, the plan is basically then just to keep distribution right here in-house? In yeah, pretty much. Yeah. I mean, so our goal is to sell most of our beer through the tap room. 
um, and have that interactive experience with customers and get the feedback that they're enjoying it or what they want to see or, or whatnot. We'll, we'll look to self-distribute some kegs to area restaurants or bars that are beer focused. Um, but yeah, we're not, I mean, I don't, we don't have any plans to bottle or can or anything. We could potentially maybe on an anniversary or some special release or do something because there are some mobile uh, packaging options mm -hmm. available that because we don't have space here for that really either but they could come in for a day to knock out a batch or do something so mm -hmm. we haven't put that uh, never say never but we're definitely not like it's hard to focus cranking out a, you know production level 20 or 30 barrel brew house of just making a bunch of the same thing and, and getting it canned and on the on the store shelves so we're gonna, we lived, uh, one of our last assignments in the army was Germany. One thing that we just loved about Europe, Germany specifically and Europe in general is that you have so many just city or little regional breweries that service that area. You don't see their products throughout the whole country. Mm -hmm. So it's, it's kind of what made those towns unique is you go find their little brew house and their little place and and uh, just enjoy what they had because that's the only place you're going to get it. So, um, you know, we don't aspire to become the next Sierra Nevada or something that's building a second brewery on the East Coast and, you know, this massive national footprint. We would rather, to me, it's going to be cool when someday some guy from Omaha is sitting at the bar and saying he read about us online and made it a point that when he came to San Francisco he knew we had to stop by FDR because that's the only time he's going to get to taste these beers. So, you know, if we ever had that, I'd feel pretty, pretty ecstatic. So, but, I mean, I, we'll, we'll ha just as happily service the local area here and all the residents that live within walking distance and that's where it all starts. But that, that's who we want to focus on, just focus local. And if someone comes to us, then that's, that's great too. Great. All right. So we talked about the Belgian orange. Yep. But uh, what's the, what do you what would you say is the most unusual beery thing you've ever done? Unusual beery thing. The wit with the extracts. Mm, no, which one? The wit with the extracts when we made the lavender basil extract pouring. Oh, that was a little. That was a Berliner Weiss. We well we uh, tried it so. It, it was at a, a picnic to people who weren't, it wasn't a beer crowd necessarily. We took the Berliner Weisse that I had made, but we uh, we made our own, traditionally those are served with syrups or have an option. And so we didn't make a woodruff, we made a basil, a basil lemon syrup. It was this nice green, it turned it this vibrant green color. And then we made a raspberry syrup, which was uh, more traditional, but the basil was surprising, that herbal component, and people weren't expecting to like it at all, and they were coming back for more. So you had this sourness that they weren't used to, and then this basil thing. It was definitely, I think that was, I mean, for me, for us, or for me, I had obviously read about or seen these things or had something similar, but exposing or serving that at a picnic with a bunch of non-beer geeks that you could see their head kind of exploding with to them beer was yellow fizzy stuff and mm -hmm. they were like what is this you're calling beer and it was a flavor profile that wasn't like anything they had, they had really had so 
So that's what I was So I got that about. totally wrong. I'm like the witch with the lavender basil. I'm so yeah. tired. Yeah. <laughs> I, I think you're allowed. <laughs> I'm so exhausted right now. Yeah. I keep on telling Kevin, I'm like that marathon runner who, you know, they're like, 20 meters from the finish line and all of a sudden their body breaks down and they're like literally crawling everybody's cheering them on and they're you know practically throwing up and just buckled right yeah. i'm gonna get there i'm just so tired. Yeah, our doors are yeah we are doors so yeah. yes it was the broken arm bicep excuse me yeah, but any other one that you can think of that's really weird yeah. uh not that would Qualifies weird in Drew's book. He's done. Well, but, but remember, my my book is not the only book here. We right. do, it, you know, you have Denny, who of course thinks that anything right. that I do is weird. Right, right. I actually, I mean, one of the things to me with the with the homebrew shop, I think a lot of times, and I mentioned this before about having the foundation of knowing knowing how this stuff works before you start throwing the kitchen sink at, at your recipes. Mm -hmm. And I, I want to try to. That's that's probably the pulpit like speech that I'll give to new home brewers is let's get the basics down and then get into adding things and really try to rein them in because I think a lot of times home brewers will, especially new ones, will have make, a spice, yeah, make a spice beer or something and it's heavily overspiced. And I've done it. I mean, mm -hmm. I look back at some of my recipes and think like the very first you know, pumpkin spice beers I ever tried were probably borderline undrinkable. But mm -hmm. because we were hosting the party and the beer was free, like people loved it. Yeah. People like it. So it's see it's see previous discussion about people right. who will drink anything. Right. Right. Well, um, so yeah, I'm just trying to think. I I usually years ago I had a humanities class like when I was in middle school. So this gives you an idea. It was a while ago. Yeah. And my teacher of that class quoted Pablo Picasso, who had said something along the lines of, before you attempt uh, your, a cubist painting, you should be able to draw the most perfect still life. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And it's the, the same sort of thing. And I, and I actually, uh, dear listeners, I know this will be shocking to you, but even with all the sort of crazy banani type stuff that I do, I'm still very much in that belief. But you have to be. Yeah. Well, you don't have to be. You all listeners can have your own opinions. My opinion is you should know this or have your processes, procedures down so that if you are experimenting or doing different things, you have some reasonable expectation that what mm -hmm. you change or what you're trying to do is a result of that action and not because you failed to do something very basic or the recipe, the base recipe was clearly flawed and regardless of the experimental part, you would have not had a good beer or you would have had problems, but um, that's just kind of me. I mean, that's just where I, 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 and I think, you know, some people, a lot of our beers, if we put on a beer here, because we have the homebrew shop, if we say it's a, uh, you know, if we say it's a, a Belgian or a Trappist single, then it should be by style guidelines within those guidelines. If we say it's something wacky or different, then fine, throw the style guideline or it's a specialty beer. But if we say we're putting a Kolsch on tap, then I want that to be like stylistically what a Kolsch style beer would be. So, there you go. Yeah, get it right back into the Kolsch tree or whatever it is. Right, right. All right. So, 
what's the worst thing that ever happened to you in the brewery? Like beer mistake or physical injury or stupid thing that you've done? Well, well, not the worst thing. Stupid <laughs> just happened recently, of course. So we're just getting the brewery, my very first inaugural brew here on the Seven Barrel System. And Shay and my brother had left, so I'm going solo to try to bring this thing to a close. And uh, we actually didn't even have a spent grain, we had a spent grain plan, but the Recology container hadn't arrived yet, so I knew we wouldn't have a place for those over, overnight. So rather than let the grains just sit in the mash tun overnight and dry and get caked out and make my first cleaning of the mash tun really difficult, I thought, well, I'll flood the tank with water again just to keep it uh, wet, which I knew would smell horrible the next day, but uh, I was correct when I went to clean it. It was much easier because it had stayed liquid. But while I was filling that tank with water, uh, I went over and I was checking something about the fermenter. Right as I turned around, the hose flew out of the mash tun, hit the brew deck. It was locked in the on position at the uh, high-powered stream of water, and it drills me right in the chest like I'm getting shot by this, you know, hot water, <coughs> right center chest, the big about a 12-foot stream of water. I'm then fighting, you know, getting out of, and as I stumble over to turn the hose off. I stumble into the, the little brew control panel and I must have hit the emergency off to my brew kettle. And as I'm soaking wet and I'm kind of sorting out what the hell just happened, then I'm looking my brew kettles off and I'm thinking, great, now I got a circuit breaker, something like, it's just everything's going sideways. And then I realize, oh no, I just stumbled into <laughs> the brew uh, controller while I was getting shooting myself with water somehow from 12 feet away. So when someone says you can't spray yourself with water from 12 feet, I would challenge that uh, <laughs> assumption because it can be done. You just have to set it up correctly. So. It, it just, it, it's very Goldberg, but yeah. it still works. It was, uh, my brother said, man, if you had a video just like observing you, <laughs> that would have been a viral sensation, right? Because well, and it, would, and it would have had a bunch of people online doubting the authenticity of it. That, right. that, that's ridiculous. Right. It was, it was really, uh, that was about 10 and a half or 11 hours into brew day one when I'm trying to figure this system out. And that actually brought a smile and made me chuckle like, man, after all this, this is how I get paid back is to get doused with even more water. So I think it's the brewer's life. Yeah. Now, for the, for the record, when you when you start to mention flooding the tank to keep the grains wet, yeah, uh, yeah, uh, Shay and I both instinctively just wrinkled the nose at the, yeah. the possible aroma. Yeah, well, I knew it would be, uh, yeah, not pleasant the next day when I came to clean. Well, he texted me the next day because I'm I'm now trying to get Recology to get. The, our spent grain bin back there. You know, where's the bin? Where's the bin? You know, it was supposed to be here yesterday. And they're like, oh, there was a mix up. But he's texting me going, man, this is awful smelling. Yeah. So, yeah. Don't open the, don't open the mash tun. Don't let the cops nearby. Right. I think there's a dead body. But it was, I mean, aside from the smell, it was very easy to clean up and it worked out well. So, well, there you go. But um, we're new at this, so worse things can happen. Yeah. You know. This is true, but hey, you know, it's always good to get something bad, uh, you know, out of the way on the very first one, yeah. you know, because then, all right, hey, right. what the hell? All right, next question. 
what common wisdom brewing practice do you believe is wrong or everybody's concerns about is overinflated? Oh, geez. So something that people are doing that uh, so, something that people that people swear by that you know, you know this is this is the right way to do it. It's the only way to do it, and that you either don't agree with or you think that like their concerns about it are overinflated that causes them to do something strange. I'm kind of going to reverse it and sure. say I think what people, what especially homebrewers, what they don't pay close enough attention to is fermentation control. And so they put like, they have a budget and they get eyes on the slick, sexy, biggest, newest, uh, three tier or, you know, the pumps and gadgets and a beautiful stainless little home brewery that they're going to go buy and spend a lot of money on. And then, well, how are you fermenting it? And it's, oh, I throw up some buckets in the closet or something. Like, to me, mm-hmm. you're, you're, you're overlooking, uh, I mean, that adage of brewers make work and yeast make beer holds true and that you have to, I think, spend more time understanding fermentation control and process. So to me, that would be the one I would like to see home brewers put more attention to and not think of these, whatever, whatever they're spending their time and money on trying to understand, like, Get your get some oxygen into your word. A lot of people still don't do that. They just overlook it. Like, ah, oh, it's not that important. I'll splash it around a little bit. But a little red O2 bottle with a little oxygen wine would go a long way to improving uh, fermentation. So, and then a simple thermostat control on the fridge or something. But try to control ferment better. I think people think it's too like that's the. The hard part of brewing is the cold side, the sanitized side. Like that's where all the problems I think. That probably as a judge, ninety percent or more of the flaws that I find in homebrew comps, you can trace back to ferment problems. Very rarely is it process in the brew day, or you know, you have some recipe comments occasionally as well. But please don't, please don't use two pounds of corn sugar right. anywhere. Right, that would be a good one. Don't use, don't make a porter with two pounds of corn sugar. That tastes really thin and, uh, yeah, acetic, vinegary, horrible ferment. So yeah, that's my point stands. I didn't control ferment at all in that thing, and it wasn't a good beer. So I don't know if that that kind of reversed the question. That's fine. What I think people should spend more time understanding and really get into. That's well, your point is, is you know, your this big sexy system isn't going to make the beer. Right. Like, Don't the overemphasis on work production. I would take an extract brew, fermented well. Is I would bet is probably going to be a better tasting beer than someone who makes really great work on this high speed all grain system, and then they just don't really manage the ferment very well, and it's. That's where all the bad stuff happens. Metal is sexy, but you can't drink it. Right. Right. <laughs> all right. So uh, since you obviously have your little homebrew shop down here, and, you, right. and you're already talking about you know spending a lot of time understanding your ingredients and getting a good foundation going, let's knock out the ingredient questions here real quick. Uh, just rapid fire. What's your favorite malt? Polymer solder. Favorite yeast? Learning. So, well. Favorite yeast? You've stumped me, the rapid fire. I know I'm not playing the game right. Answer it. 
At a homebrew level, I was a fan of dry yeast quite a bit, and I would use USO5 a lot, but I really loved the Bell Saison uh, dry yeast. That thing chews through everything really okay. well. And do you have a favorite one yet at, uh, at the pro level? Or We're still using a lot of gig yeast. Uh, I'm trying to use them with, well, all gig yeast so far because they're our local, they're really close. I get yeast like that was made two days ago and I'm pitching it in a seven barrel batch. So, so far, so good. They got the Scaramont uh, strain, like the trace back to Chimay, and mm -hmm. that's my, the Belgian yeast that I'm using in that stout that I really like to do so, but it's, it's ripping through it, so I'm pretty happy thus far, so. Cool. All right, favorite hop? Amarillo. Amarillo, all right. And favorite other ingredient that we haven't mentioned? Anything else that you, that you really love? Shay <laughs> <laughs> says love. I say love. Uh, love, love, love. Other ingredient, um, it's hard to work with and it's not fun to use, but I like a little bit of rye in some recipes just to, um, and not necessarily, like I've made Roggen beers and stuff, mm -hmm. and, uh, and I've made probably a bastardized version of Denny's Rye PA, because um, I didn't have the hop seed called for, but I, so I changed it up, but I like a rye PA and whatnot, but um, there's a little bit of rye in the Saison that I do, and just, I like throwing it in different beers, just as a uh, kind of sneaky thing, like mm -hmm. actually a Saison I had at the California State Homebrew Comp last year, that place was, the judge comment was, they couldn't quite put their finger on what it was, and I was looking at it going, I was probably at a little so, bit of rye that didn't. That's a, that's a good level to have that. Yeah. So it sounds like what rye is to you is how I treat oats. I love yeah. having, I, I love having yeah. a little dose of oats or oat malt and a lot yeah. of different things. Yeah. Because I really love that character. Yeah. A friend of mine makes an oatmeal amber that just people love. And I, I think a lot like an ingredient like that or it's almost below threshold or you just, I like making a beer that, especially if you spice or do something where someone's going, something's there, they can't quite put their finger on what it is, and that's, I think, a good level, because mm -hmm. you're not beating them over the head with it, but you're, you're adding intrigue and complexity to it. Right. So. So, all right, uh, real quick, what are some of your favorite flavors? Just What are your favorite flavors? Dishing uh, it off like an experienced married couple. All right, look at him. Uh, I do like citrus, like a hint of citrus in a lot of uh, the beers that I tend to like because, like, once again, I like sours. Um, but you don't like big bitter. I, I'm not. I'm, yeah, I'm not a big bitter. I'm not into bitter flavors. I'm more into sour flavors, mm -hmm. and so anything that goes sour. So um, I like a little bit of citrus. I like um, coriander. Um, some of that, you know, uh, spice. But not that, so you can like oh that's coriander. I like hints of coriander. I like middle uh, middle flavor like sea hops, just little classic mm -hmm. American sea hops like oh, Cascade Centennial I like duos in the middle of beers like. Um, I still enjoy that quite a bit. So. When you say in the middle of beers, yeah, just those flavor hop additions. I mean, I like the big nose, like, but you ask for flavor. I mm -hmm. mean, I love 
uh, citrusy, tropical, piney. Like I love a huge hop dose. Like mm-hmm. I have them tattooed up and down my arm, but mm-hmm. it's. Uh, um, but I don't have to just always have IPAs either. You know, do other stuff. I like a, um, a little bit of a biscuity note, like in some darker beers or a porter or something. Like mm-hmm. have a little bit of malty uh, broadiness biscuit. Like I like that flavor profile yeah. too. Toasty. Real quick, since you said that, uh, you said you don't like uh, bitter flavors, but you like citrus. Mm-hmm. Now, have, have you had much time to play around with like or explore the Sort of like the newer style of IPAs where they're like shoving in as much the hot flavor but trying to avoid as much of the bitterness so that you get like the big citrusy notes and everything, or is that still? No, I think that's still new to me. I mean, that's something that would definitely appeal to me. I love the smell of hops, you know, mm-hmm. like for me, the nose of hops, like that juicy, fruity smell of hops sometimes can really, like, I love that. Like, I, but when it comes to like a really like, double triple IPA and it gets really bitter that's where it starts to uh, I'm not as big of a fan she so. has been um, like when we went back to beer school in Vermont and heavy topper and, mm-hmm. and I know there's the current debate on color then but there's a reason I think they say drink it from the can yeah then you don't see what it looks like but the nose on that she really mm-hmm. really loved and it has a great aroma and you know, if you don't want to drink it with your eyes and don't look at it, I think it's a really nice spirit. And here, it's, I think in other parts of the country, it's not as much of a debate, but when, because there's such thing as a West Coast IPA, there's such a... Oh, the, oh there's a big religious one. Yeah, there, yeah, there's such a, like, we created that style or a feeling of that's... It's you ours. Know, it, yeah, it's ours not to... It's like uh, East Coast versus West Coast. Yeah. Uh, but even more so. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so... Just to revisit one of the words that you said, because you use the word juicy, and a lot of people, a lot of people use that when they're talking about this sort of New England IPA, new, newfangled hop thing. Yeah. And so, I'm not so much about having rants about this sort of word, but Denning does for some reason. So, yeah. this one's for Denning. I'm going to ask this whenever somebody uses the word juicy. When you say the word juicy, what do you mean? Well, juicy for, to me, like, I, I don't know, I guess the, the best way to, to describe it sometimes is I feel like you can take two oranges side by side uh, or a fruit of any sort side by side. And if you have them at the market and you can t- you can smell the freshness of it, like you can smell one that's fresh and smell one that's not fresh. Like the one that's fresh is like juicy to me. It means it's it's ripe, it's ready, it's, you know, it's just waiting for you to dive into it. Mm-hmm. That's what I mean by juicy, whereas, you know, you have a fruit that's been sitting for a while longer, you can smell it, you can smell that it smells like an orange, but it's not something you're like, oh, I can't wait to have that. It's big, it's bright, it's, it's fresh. It's big, it's bright, it's fresh. It's like, you know, when you, you think of, um, you know, farm to table, mm-hmm. you think of juicy, like vegetables and fruits, like they're right there, they're ready for you to eat in the moment, right? As opposed mm-hmm. to something that's gone through this massive change. Mm-hmm. Of, um, of distribution to finally get to your table. You know, those don't seem as juicy. So I so use so that you, to be the, big and fresh. And yeah, so it's that ev- evocation of freshness. Yes, and also like makes your mouth water. You're, you can't wait to actually taste it. So when I have a beer that, you know, I can't wait to taste um, because of the smell of it, I mean, obviously, you, before you even taste a beer, you usually smell the beer. Mm-hmm. And so that that little moment of anticipation between smelling it and tasting it is big for me. 
I thought I heard you say juicy fruit. I like the gum or something, which has a distinct. Uh, and that's that's oh, another really that's another place people take it too, but yeah. mm-hmm. so. but both you know I do and I like that smell. I just I, I think the smell of hops appeals to me. It's it sometimes gets a little too bitter, but I think that I you know if I can find you know these new styles of beer that you know sort of balance out the B word. Sorry, <laughs> I feel like I can't use that word now. Um, that sort of balance that you know I I I, I like hops for how they smell. I love I love. And um, I love the approach of a lot of late hops and that New England style as far as not having to be as bitter as some of the West Coast varieties. I think here we would try to do that with some clarity though, not have it as murky looking and whatnot, just because I have, we're not filtering here, but we'll use some finding agents and such. And I, I, I tend to try to brew clearer beers or think it's, they look, more presentable, but um, I don't really care <laughs> like where people fall on. That's what's great about beer, though, is that especially in the homebrewing community, is most of, so many homebrewers. Well, why did you get into homebrewing? Because I couldn't buy mm-hmm. what I liked, and I had to make it myself. And so, if you like a cloudy beer, then make it. And if you don't, then don't make it or don't drink them. Like it's yeah, I mean, yeah. To me, it's. If, if it offends you, then let it offend you and let other people enjoy it. Right. Yeah. So, all right. Um, so kind of along those lines, uh, what is something that you wish that more people would drink or explore? Well, I, I think, uh, I, well, and part of this is putting on a business hat now that we're owning a brewery and things like, um, you know, how do you forecast the next trend or, you know, this mm-hmm. now that the tr- I mean, IPs have been more than a trend or a fad for sure. They've had staying power, but they've morphed into all these different colors and spectrums mm-hmm. and the BJCPs even reclassified and identified certain specialty IPAs. And mm-hmm. But now you see a lot of fruit IPAs. Like, that's the next realm. And sours have been running their court. But I, I try to wonder, well, are, it, talking to some people here, it seems like, they're getting, it is starting to wane a bit. They're, they're like, I'm tired of going to a place and they'll have 10 beers on tap and six of them are IPAs or some variant. Like, uh, I, was, it, I was at a place not too long ago where they had 40 taps and I think of the 40, 36 were IPAs. Right, and so they're a little tiresome. So, I don't know, is the next trend more, you know, malt focused beers or are they going to be, you know, loggers are going to be hard, would be hard for us to do just because of throughput and such, and on our scale, uh, tying up tanks for that long mm-hmm. isn't really feasible, but throw out an occasional colch or something cleaner and lager-like, or just a crisp, nice, refreshing beer that's not overly hoppy, like, we want to bring those types of beers to people here, along with an occasional IP and such, but, um, you know, I would like to see more variety. There's a lot of beers out there. We were talking earlier about people who say they don't like beers. I hear that comment as if someone's saying, I don't like food. Mm-hmm. Like, you do like some kind of food. <laughs> you just haven't probably found the beer, the right beer for you yet. So if we keep just throwing out IPAs, they may never come around. But if you throw out some other things, some Belgian beers have a lot of neat characteristics from the yeast and just play around with that and bring different things that people can enjoy uh, more than one thing. 
we've we've been strongly pushing on the podcast that yeah. you know, hey, let's make a return to to the idea of the session beer. Right. Mm-hmm. You know, there's things that you can come to come to the place and have a couple of right. Yeah. right. Good shape. You know, I you know, I feel our the bigger challenge in brewing in general, um, for the brew community in general, is to broaden their demographic, you know, as opposed to the white bearded guy. Um, bearded white guy. Bearded right. white Present guy. Company. That's me. Right. And yes. Andrew. And that's working well. <laughs> so that's working well. It works well. However, you know, let's. I hear all the time. Oh, I don't drink beer. Oh, I don't like beer. You know, we have people who are excited for us to come to their neighborhood here on San Bruno Avenue um, because there's nothing like us around here. And you know, oh, do you drink beer? Or oh, what is this place? Oh, it's a brewery. Oh, I don't drink beer. Well, come in when we open. Let me give you a sample. Let me find a beer that you might like. So it's sort of broadening that idea because I think now with the trend being hoppy, 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 hoppy IPAs, you know, and that can feel bitter on the tongue to a lot of people, there are other things out there. So trying to get people in the doors who wouldn't like, who say they don't like beer, for me is like the, the challenge I want to take on and say, I bet, you, I bet I can find a beer that you like. Um, you may not love it right at first, but like anything, it's, things are required taste. So yeah. come back, try another one, you know, like, oh. His orange chocolate stout tends to surprise a lot of people because mm-hmm. they think it was big and heavy and it's not. Um, so there's a lot of people who, oh, I don't like beer, but they love his orange chocolate stout. So starting there and kind of taking off from there. I, I, have a, I have a big belief that a lot of people go around trying to convert people to better beer the wrong way. Mm-hmm. You know, they try and like, hey, here's my Kolsch, or here's my wheat beer, or, mm-hmm. you know, because they, they try desperately to run away from the, the dark beer thing. Mm-hmm. And I've converted more people with a well-placed glass of a good stout, mm-hmm. because it plays into flavors that people already like with those coffee and chocolate notes. Right. And then you have your adding in like some of the sweet candy type things with the orange and whatnot. Yeah. We did a, an event the other day, and the gentleman we had uh, we had the saison and a porter. And oh, I don't drink dark beers. I don't like dark beers. I said, well, try this porter. It's not heavy. It's not going to taste dark to you. And he came back and kept on coming back and kept on coming back and he loved that beer because people have a preconceived notion that it's like a meal. Right. Like a dark beer, a dark beer is going to be like a meal to them, and it's not the truth all the time, most right. times. So, um, just to uh, kind of take things towards the finish line here. Yeah. Now that we've been talking for a little bit, um, so you guys are looking at opening uh, when? So we're at. Yeah, we have a, a private event in a couple weeks for investors and other people who have helped us in this two-year-plus uh, road that we've been on. And then somewhere around the Memorial Day weekend, we were aiming to open the doors to the public, just kind of soft opening. That, that's 27th, when, 28th. Yeah, that weekend. Mm-hmm. So with the homebrew shop open, we've had a bunch of neighborhood gawkers like walking in and they're disappointed that the tap room's not open yet and we haven't converted them to homebrewers yet but they're excited yeah but even if they don't they're just like uh so this area of the city where there isn't really anything else like us within walking distance of a lot of residential space so they're looking forward to it so we're just looking forward to getting the doors open for them and we won't 
our aim is to have eight to beer, eight to ten beers on tap regularly, and, but by that weekend we should have about four to five. But um, that's enough to get people in the door and start having something. So, and the eight to ten that you'll have will all be house beers. Yes. So we're we're a California is called a Type Twenty Three right. license. So that's all we can serve is our own beers that we make. We can't. Um, we can't serve other breweries. So. Well, so that gives you extra incentive to keep the variety up, right? And keep the tanks moving, right? Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Right, right. All right, and then uh, just to uh, close it out, uh, we always like to close our show with you know non-beer things for the week, right? You know, like it's something that, that we're all about. So, what is a non-beer thing that y'all are fascinated by or obsessed with? Hmm. That's a good question. I could do an easy default to sports or something, but I don't know if that something I'm fascinated with. Yeah, like, like, like what's something that what's something that occupies the non-beery part of your brain? You know. Yeah. Art. For any, you, yeah, for me, for it's sure. art. For any, any particular variety. No, all, any, you know, I've always dabbled in all different kinds of art, you know, painting, stained glass, um, you name it, you know, jewelry making, anything. So I've always dabbled in all of that and with kids it's sort of been put on hold (laughs) for the last 14 years. Yeah. Um, ish, but now I feel like with the brewery, it's reinvigorating my creative side of me that I haven't always been able to express. And so we do here also hope to have a art wall for mm-hmm. local um, artists to have small art openings here. And so that for me is kind of what I always think of. My head goes to like a creative space. Right now. Um, well, well the, MoMA, the new MoMA is just opening up here in San Francisco, and Kevin mm-hmm. and I had this discussion about it yesterday, and I'm kind of, you know, fascinated by modern art, what makes modern art, mm-hmm. what makes it art, does it make it art, you know, all of those questions that swirl around modern art, so I've been thinking about that a lot lately. Well, and I was going to say, the uh, backsplash, or the, the big wall mm-hmm. piece behind mm-hmm. the, the, the taps, mm-hmm. that was done by you, right? That was done by me. So all stained and, and designed and... Yeah, so you know, a lot of the stuff that's happening in the space is um, d- done by myself, um, and that's where I—that's where I, I love. And whether it's successful or not, I don't know, but I love it, and so that's what I'm presenting. And uh, it feels good to me to have my hand on the projects. And, and she is currently covered uh, in paint splatters, so yeah, yeah. yeah. She, she, she's living. She's living the dream. Yeah. <laughs> right. Yeah. All right, and Kevin. I mean, my fallback, I'm a sports guy. My brother's been down here helping us. He loves following sports. We talk about that a lot. But I like music a lot, too. And just the other night, I've been buried in this project to get this brewery going, and I missed... uh, There was a rendition... uh, The guy... uh, Disturbed. Disturbed, saying sound of silence on their mm-hmm. latest album and they had played it on conan o'brien and i'm watching a video of this thing and just had it on repeat and just going ahead in the car then and just to hear his vocal range and so I, I really appreciate music and i don't spend enough time appreciating it like i wish i could lately but I, i'm glad i came out from under my rock of brewery you know stuff to hear that one so that was pretty cool so Music and then uh, 
I like baseball quite a bit. We have friends that actually play in what they call the Bay Area Vintage Baseball uh, League. So they play by 1886 rules and they, it's all that we, we just shorthand, we just call it old timey baseball. But, mm -hmm. um, we haven't had time this spring, but last spring I would like often just go to Golden Gate Park and just take a Sunday afternoon and just watch these guys playing baseball, and it's uh, it was pretty it's pretty cool. That's just a leisurely sport, and you're watching them play. I don't know, but that's that's fun stuff for me. That's cool. Oh, yeah, I don't, I don't think I don't think a lot of people know about the vintage baseball rules. So yeah, 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 it's an interesting approach. They get like seven balls to a walk and. You get hit by a pitch, it, it can be called a ball or a strike. You don't get to go to first. It's, a, it's a kind of crazy. Yeah, it's so. crazy. It's but cool to watch. Oh, yeah, right. And he said, we, we have, also have kids. We have kids, <laughs> we have kids so they, we enjoy doing stuff with them. My we'll, mind we'll has been that, occupied by them as we'll well. We'll put that plug in there, too. And <laughs> there you go. We still enjoy our children. <laughs> <laughs> and, and soon to be joined by a third child that's very big yes. and inanimate. Yeah, FDR. Yeah, FDR. Right. right. Well, hey, guys, thank you so much for uh, sitting down and talking with me. Good luck with the opening. And uh, uh, hopefully we'll be on sometime in about the same period of time as when you're opening so that uh, people can come find you. Uh, address? 2636 San Bruno Avenue in San Francisco. Not in South San Francisco, not in San Bruno itself, but in San Francisco. San Francisco. Yeah. Yes. Right. And uh, website? It is our name www.fermentdrinkrepeat.com. There we go. <laughs> All right. Well, thank you guys again. Thank you so thank much. You. And thank I hope you. you. I hope everybody out there in the audience land had a good time listening in. So we'll see you guys later. Okay. Bye. Bye bye. Wow, man, those guys must have limitless energy. You know, uh, you, you often hear people say, "Oh, you're you're crazy to open up a homebrew shop. It's so much work." You're crazy to open up a brewery. It's so much work. And here they are doing both of them at once. Yeah. And, and really having to kind of adjust to some of the challenges that, that, that they're facing. You know, the homebrew shop part is obviously a small portion of the whole thing right off the tasting room. Tasting room when I was there was still in flight, but it was looking set up and uh, gorgeous with, you know, wonderful custom art. And then I just love the fact that they had to adjust uh, what their brewing plan was based on the building. <laughs> yeah, really. The other thing that I was happy to hear mention was their use of Star K white extracts. Uh, I got turned on to those by a friend quite a number of years ago, the, the chocolate extract specifically. And I've used a couple of the other ones, and I have thought that they were uh, just outstanding. Uh, I know that you're a fan of uh, the Olive Nation extracts. Have you used mm -hmm. the Star K white? No, I haven't. Uh, but I mean, I do know I've heard of them before, and they have a pretty good reputation. Uh, so it definitely sounds like something I should uh, reach out for just to try. Yeah, they're readily available online. Um, they might even be in stores. I've never actually looked, but uh, I've used two or three different flavors of their extracts, and I have been completely impressed by the quality. So, uh, and they're they're available on Amazon. So we'll link to them in the in the show description. Yeah. Right. Okay. Sounds great. So. Uh, so check the website for a link to the Star K White Extracts. Uh, if you need some flavoring for your next beer, definitely something to take a look at. So I guess it's uh, time now to take a quick break and uh, answer some questions, huh? You, you, you consider taking a break uh, to be answering questions? Man, that feels like work. <laughs>
<laughs> yeah, right. Well, well, we'll take a quick break so we can refill our beers and then answer some questions so it won't be so much like work. How's that? I like that. That's a better plan. All right. We'll be right back. It's just about time. It's just about time. Don't you think it's about time? We talked about beer. Okay, this is the part where everybody sings. Beer, 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 beer. Beer, 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 beer. Beer, 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 beer. Beer, 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 beer. And as the ukulele fades slowly into the distance, for which we can all be grateful... It's time for Ask Denny and Drew, the part of the show where we try and see if we can come up with halfway decent answers to your questions. And Drew has the first one this episode. Yeah, but first I just want to say, now I'm going to walk around all day with that damn song in my head. All right. First question comes from Tom Brennan, who uh, emailed us uh, to say, uh, first off, I'm a big fan of the podcast. We love fans. Thank you. I discovered it somewhere around episode four, so I listen to it as I go around for my walks at five in the morning. Yeah, I'm that kind of guy. Well, while I appreciate the walks at five o'clock in the morning, I'm actually surprised that you don't consider this a safety hazard to be listening to us at five in the morning. But <laughs> uh, says uh, your talk on brewing on the ones totally changed my style of brewing. My entire process has become so much simpler that along with the, some tweaks in my brew house have helped my beers taste even better. Okay, now that I've buttered you up enough, I just want to see if you think this is a crazy enough idea to work. You do not have to give me feedback on this, but a simple yes or no would be fine. Well, too bad you're going to get a lot yes. of feedback. Uh, and it's a wheat saison. <laughs> f- uh, 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 Tom uh, emails in a wheat saison recipe uh, for five gallons, 57% two-row, 38% white wheat malt, 5% carrot, 20 for some color, uh, and then a half ounce of sriracha ace at 60 minutes and a half ounce of sriracha ace at five minutes with a pitch onto a previous dry yeast that he used. Uh, uh, thanks, and keep up the good uh, good work. Oh, I guess Denny, too. All right, so... Ooh, the, ow, yeah. ow. Yeah, now you know why it's in here. It's Saison, and it digs at Denny. Yay. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> no, all right, so uh, the question uh, question seems to be about uh, whether or not I agree with the recipe formulation here. And, yeah, I totally do. The What your recipe is there, Tom, is not too far off. Uh, from my uh, saison printemps, uh, which is my wheat-based uh, saison that I do for this, uh, the springtime, oddly enough. Uh, and it's it's a heavily wheat-based recipe because I like that, that flavor, and I like the lightness that goes up against it, and I think it also plays really, really well with American-style hops like the Sriracha Ace, you know, kind of, or I guess I shouldn't say American-style hops. Uh Modern newfangled fruit forward hops. How's that? <laughs> uh, yeah, yeah. My uh, my only concern with sriracha ace is always whether or not you get into lemon pledge territory, but that seems to be uh, crop dependent. So my only change that I would say is I would probably still stick with my usual regime, which is a bittering dose of Magnum, and then l- load in the flavoring hops later. But I think you're going to be good enough, and you'll have an awesome, awesome lightweight saison that you can uh, guzzle down easily. So, in a nutshell, then, your answer would be yes. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. In the Swedish, Drew speaks Swedish. I didn't know that. Okay, next question comes from Matt Scorer, and he says, Hi, guys. Really been enjoying the podcast from here in the UK. Seems like the all-grain scene here is hotting up recently. 
I'd like to ask, what do you think is the best way to achieve that distinctive red color? It's difficult to calculate, as obviously SRM doesn't take redness into account, so I guess the only way to find out is to brew it. That's right, Matt. I've heard roasted barley in very small amounts, but what percentage? Also read about specialty malts such as Cara Red and Cararoma, but then some folks seem to have similar results with more standard crystal malts like Crystal 150. What have you used and what works best in your experience? Cheers, Matt Scorer. Well, Matt, like a lot of questions, the answer starts with, it depends. Um, yeah, a, a little bit of roast barley, like 1% of your total grist, no more, in a recipe that has some other, you know, slightly reddish malts already, like, you know, some Crystal 60 or uh, Dark Munich or something like that, will give you some red coloring. Now, it depends on how red you want it to be. Probably about the reddest beer you can make will be made with red X malt as 100% of the grist at an original gravity of about 1050. Uh, less gravity and you get more of a pale red color, uh, higher gravity, and it starts uh, darkening up on you. So if... <laughs> If there's a style of beer that you can make using 100% Red X at 150, that's going to be your reddest color. Um, you know, it, you can make like things like alts, uh, ambers, stuff like that uh, with that kind of grist. Now, obviously, uh, you know, other, other beer styles won't work as well. You mentioned Kara Red. I have used Kara Red before, and I find that it does a a really good job of getting some red color into the beer. Uh, you mentioned Cararoma. Yeah, a little bit, but not quite so much. Um, and then you also mentioned using standard crystal malts. Yeah, you can you can do it with that too. Something like maybe about 3% crystal 120 or something like that might kind of get you into that area. So there's a, there's a whole bunch of ways you can go about this. And like you said, the best way to do it is to uh, pick something and start brewing and then uh, adjust from there if it's not what you want. Or get a hold of some of the uh, Red X mold and uh, give it a shot and see what that does for you. You got any other suggestions there, Drew? Well, I'll just add in my, my two senses. Part of what I think you need to think about, particularly on that crystal versus the Red X versus Sacra 50 versus uh, the Roast Malt, is what exactly do you want when you say you want red? Because some people just yeah. want the color red, in which case totally go for something like uh, Red X or the, the Roast Edition or the Sacra 50. But if you want red plus sort of slightly sweet, you know, like a lot of people tend to think of red as being uh, almost automatically associated with the caramel, then in that case, that's when you want to reach for those crystals. Right. Yeah. Yeah. So it, it, it kind of gets back to what I was saying originally. It it all depends on what you want out of that beer besides the color. Uh, there are a lot of ways to get to the color, uh, but you got to get the flavor you want. So, uh, you know, keep that in mind. So uh, Drew now has one where the guy sounds just a bit peeved. Yeah, this one uh, this one definitely comes under the category of uh, some uh, ranty, hatey type stuff, but it, it was an interesting enough conversation for us to have. I thought we should answer it. Uh, this one comes from Mr. H, who emailed us. 
And it says, uh, during the uh, blank festival, uh, I talked with a representative from a local brewery about an interesting popular brew they had on tap. After I complimented him on the brew I was drinking, I told him I was brewing a similar beer. He immediately said, well, I'm not going to tell you what we put in ours. First off, go F yourself. I never asked. Uh, secondly, I'm a five-gallon batch home brewer, not Slugworth. I brushed that off. And, Ooh. Yeah. Hey, Charlie and Chocolate Factory. I, I know, man. I love it. A Charlie and the Chocolate Factory re- uh, reference. I brushed that off and told him an ingredient I used, and he laughed at me. I'll tell you we didn't use that in ours. All right, dude, I'm going to make your beer, but better just to, uh, to effing spite your ass using that particular ingredient. Who let this goon into the event, and why do some craft brewers act like this? Well, I can't talk to the specifics of this particular conversation that you had, except for, well, except for it's kind of a crappy conversation. I will say that uh, beer fests are not a lot of fun when you're on the craft brewer side of the, the table. <laughs> yeah. yeah, it's a hot kind of just annoying job you're a lot of times you're not being paid for uh, for your beer that you're being done uh, poured it's all oh hey look it's good exposure for you it's marketing dollars well yeah everybody um, else is there partying and you're working yeah so one i think that's going to tend to make people crabby to begin with plus it's usually your weekend but having said that uh yeah sometimes people are just bitch holes to reference our earlier conversation. <laughs> and that definitely sounds like a bitch holy thing to say uh, coming from somebody. And I, I've known and I've met some craft brewers who are like this, who are, you know, sort of uh, uh, my recipes are proprietary. The, uh, you know, they, they, they contain my special magic. So I'm not telling you anything. And I also kind of feel like there's sometimes there's a little bit of a, a bass backwards way of trying to generate mystique about a particular beer. Um, I obviously am not precious about recipes. I will put out recipes at the drop of a hat, so I don't care about it. But there are some people who are just going to be like that. So sometimes, yeah, you run into a craft brewer who is a dick, despite all the number of times that we can sit here and say, hey, you know what's the best policy in life? Don't be a dick. Uh, Now, having said that at the same time, who knows? It could have been just a bad day. Guy had a long week. Yeah, you were the 20th person to come up and bug him about the beer that day. You know, whatever. There are lots of reasons that somebody's temper can uh, can fray, particularly over the course of pouring at a beer festival. Uh, so, hey, I don't know. A lot of times the good thing is that this sort of thing that you're talking about seems to be a relative rarity in the craft beer world. So that's a nice thing. Uh, and yeah, let's just hope it stays that way. If you run into the occasional dick, just remember they're fighting their own battles and they may just be a dick. Really, man, maybe their dog puked on the carpet that morning. They got off to a bad start or something. But um, my experience is that uh, those are a minority of the brewers out there. I do a a tour for a local brewery here, and uh, we have all the recipes for all the beers hanging on the info sheet on each fermenter. And when homebrewers come by, they take a look at them and I say, hey, if you guys want to take a picture of that so you can have the recipe, feel free, you know. Uh, we don't care. We know you're not going to be putting us out of business. Uh, so yeah, you're going to run into those people, uh, who are like, uh, like the letter here, but, uh, just take heart in the fact that, uh, most, most brewers, uh, are not going to be like that. A number of breweries even put their recipes on their websites. So, okay. Our final question today comes from Mike Hall via email. 
He wants to know, what's the difference between the BJCP style guidelines and the GABF style guidelines? I understand what each one stands for, but which one should I be using when creating recipes on my brewing software? Well, boy, there's like two, uh, two intense questions there. I guess the first one is not quite so intense. Differences between BJCP and GABF is that the GABF has a much broader uh, set of style guidelines. Uh, I, I don't remember how many styles there are. Do you remember? It's like 80 or 90, something like that. It's 90, uh, uh, 96. But remember that uh, yeah. the GABF tends to focus on much broader top-level categories because they're trying to spread out the number of metals. The BJCP packs... Yeah. BJSP actually packs more style uh, style categories into a smaller set of winnable metal categories. Yeah, right. But basically, the GABF wants to make sure that uh, no commercial brewer is left out and uh, can't find a category to enter their beer into. Now, down to the question of uh, which one should you be using. Um, I would say, depending on your purpose either one or neither. Um, if you are brewing a beer that you want to enter into a competition, we all know that in a competition, the purpose is to match the style guideline as closely as possible while minimizing any flaws in the beer, right? So if you're brewing a beer for a competition, then you definitely want to be using the BJCP style guidelines. It's just that easy, you know? Um, if you're trying to recreate a commercial beer, then I would say you could use either one. Um, you know, and I would say that you don't really necessarily need to use either one because you'll know what the specs for the beer that you're trying to recreate are. You'll know approximately what the flavor is. Uh, so you'll have an idea of of what to shoot for there you know and then there are those beers where they don't fit either one something like uh, clam chowder saison where you just get a wild hair to brew something and it doesn't fit any known style guidelines so you just kind of have to wing it and draw from your knowledge of other style guidelines but not try to replicate them exactly so uh there's there's my rambling Zen answer to that. You got anything to add, Drew? Yeah, I would just say, remember that the guidelines themselves have radically different purposes, right? So the GABF guidelines tend to uh, go directly to where commercial beers are pouring currently because, hey, mm -hmm. you know, they got to get those metals out there. The BJCP seems to have a, a more solid interest in, is this an actual thing uh, before they go and create their guidelines? Uh I don't know. I mean, I'm, I'm a guy, I like I like style guidelines for the sort of, you know, hey, give me a general picture to paint. And I think the more of them that are out there, the better. But then again, I also maintain my own style guidelines for the Falcons. So big surprise there. Right. Uh, I think, but I think for most purposes, if you're trying to make a beer, for instance, if I'm trying to make an alt beer, I don't necessarily go and look at the GABF guidelines for different kinds of alts. I find that the BJCP guidelines are going to be getting me close enough that I can I can take it from there. Yeah, but at, at the same time, though, I mean, like, there are some things, for instance, where the BJCP doesn't have the guidelines, or they don't anymore, they used to, like malt liquor. 
Malt liquor is yeah, a valid style and it, it's out there, but you know, you can go and you can look at uh, the uh, GABF guidelines and right there is, you know, exactly what the specs on it should be and the description and everything else. And the descriptions are also much, much more lightweight than, than what you find in the BJCP. So you have to take that into account as well. But they're, yeah, they're, right. so, they're, uh, they're useful resources. I just considered them additional, uh, additional bullets of knowledge. But if you're brew- if you're going to brew typically as a homebrewer and you're going to talk to other homebrewers about your beer, they're going to mostly be versed in the BJCP world and not the GABF world. So yeah, that's true. That's true. Okay. Well, I think that that about does it for the questions this episode. Uh, I, I actually kind of felt like those were some semi-valid answers, huh? It happens. <laughs> yeah. Even a blind squirrel finds a nut now and then, as they say. We also like to spend a little time on these podcasts talking about things other than beer because Drew and I do spend about uh, 3% of our lives on things outside of beer. So uh, you got something uh, you wanted to talk about this time, huh? Yeah, and I'm probably a little late to the party now that it's been out for about two weeks, but uh, I am a child of the 80s. I was born in 1974, and almost all of my childhood memories are from the 1980s. And Netflix on July 15th released eight episodes of the first season of a TV show called Stranger Things. And it's been getting rave reviews from people around the internet. And I finally dug into it, uh, my wife and I, and uh, she's also a child of the 80s. And it stars Winona Ryder uh, as a mom. And there's a set of kids on an adventure. One of the kids goes missing. And there's basically these three separate storylines, and and the show is eight hours of a glorious remix of Stephen King, Steven Spielberg, and you know just pure hardcore '80s nostalgia uh, with you know all this sort of stuff where it's like going, oh my god, that's so like my childhood. Uh, see kids riding around on bicycles without parental supervision or helmets. It's amazing. Um, but the story itself is you actually should have been around in the '50s. Yeah, no, but uh. You really have to dig into the fact that, I mean, the show really has three sort of parallel stories happening at once, and each of the stories is kind of done in a different vein. Like, one of them is very much uh, Close Encounters of the Third Kind. Uh, another one is very much horror movie, you know, like from, you know, Freddy Krueger, Stephen King type horror. And then the third one is very much kind of like, you know, E.T. slash Stand By Me. And it's just really awesome and it really does hit hardcore on all the the nerd nostalgia buttons if you're a true pedantic awful terrible nerd you'll say things like you know the show is supposed to be taking place in 1983 in hawkins indiana and you'll hear some of the songs and go hey but that song wasn't released until 1985 stop don't do that just enjoy the series (laughs) it's awesome hey it's tv so that's my recommendation stranger things on netflix again it's eight hours long and you totally you totally deserve to you know give yourself this chance to have a little bit of a nostalgia hit and also really enjoy a really well done spooky as hell story (laughs) cool man i think i'll check it out the next time my internet is working (laughs) so in other words next year (laughs) we hope Okay, and we have a quick tip now from a listener, and I'm going to let you handle this one also. Yeah, uh, so this is from uh, listener uh, Yaku, I think I got your name right, uh, from Johannesburg, South Africa. 
We're we're global, Denny. Oh, cool. Uh, uh, Yako says, in episode 10, you had a listener comment about keeping beers the correct uh, carbonation level when you are dispensing from a single CO2 cylinder. I agree 100% with your comment regarding serving the beer. Serve all at the same pressure. But I want to add my technique for getting the pressure right the next day because you never do it that night anyway. It's like he's channeling me. Um, yeah, really. I have inline John guest taps, which are these uh, detachable uh, quick connect type taps. Uh, but other taps work as well between my cylinder and each of the kegs. So when the next morning's recovery beers have been consumed, I do the following. One, I remove the empty uh, kegs. No use wasting CO2. Two, close all inline taps. Three, find the keg that requires the lowest CO2 uh, pressure slash carbonation. Four, open the tap and check the level of pressure on the regulator. Five, adjust the regulator to the required level. If release is required, some regulators will release pressure automatically or will have a valve. Otherwise, just pull the keg's pressure relief or disconnect the gas, get a flat screwdriver and depress the gas in, pop it, reattach the gas, disconnect, cycle, rinse, repeat. When the keg is in its happy place, close the tap. And he's talking the CO2 tap to the keg. Uh, find the keg that requires the next higher level of CO2. Repeat steps four to six until all the kegs are pressurized. And nine, very important. Your beers have not only lost pressure, but carbonation. Carbonation takes time or other methods. What I recommend is repeating steps one to eight every two days until none of your beers suck CO2 when pressurized. Uh, so in other words, just to kind of boil it down, uh, what Yako is recommending is basically he has individual gas lines uh, or individual gas valves to each of the kegs. They're not pressure regulator valves. They're literally on-off type valves. And so... It, right, yeah, I've got yeah, the same Yeah, and so thing. basically... Close them all down, find, uh, figure out which one requires the lowest amount of CO2, hit that with gas, let that sit, shut off that gas, find the next one, dial in your pressure, hit that one with gas, and do that periodically so that you can uh, uh, get your keg's carbonation levels back up to back up to spec. In other words, what uh, Yaku is uh, recommending here is, hey, pay attention. Don't let your beer just sit like some of us might do. <laughs> Yeah, really, I would say that's uh, that's my method. I guess it's about time to wrap things up. Yeah, huh? absolutely. So, all right, here's our question of the week. Would you ever be crazy enough to open a homebrew shop slash nanobrewery? If so, <laughs> no. well, we know you. You, you, you and I are the, the last two homebrewers standing. Uh, so if you're not crazy enough to do that, but uh, you really want to have a chance to uh, uh, experience that sort of thing, uh, by all means, go visit our friends at Ferment Drink Repeat in San Francisco. Uh, and uh, just remember, we are getting back to our regular experimentation calendar, which also means that we need Igors to help us do our experiments. So if you'd like to join the Igor Corps, win some fancy prizes, and uh, yeah, get uh, praise, laud, and love, uh, just email us at igor at experimentalbrew.com. And don't forget to help us support our charity. Right. And uh, just in, in the way of what's coming up in the next few episodes, I've been spending a lot of time on the road. So we'll be having an interview with uh, Russell Everett at Bainbridge Island Brewing, like I mentioned. And I just got back from a killer trip to Milwaukee to talk to the Milwaukee Beer Barons and uh, had a chance to uh, interview Mino Choi, the only person I know who has ever gotten several perfect 50s on score sheets. And uh, Justin Abrahamian, a, an award-winning chef who has... Uh, opened up a brewery and uh, just opening up a new brew pub in uh, in Milwaukee. So there's uh, there's some interesting stuff coming down the road. That's somebody who's insane. Hi, I have a restaurant and a brew pub and a brewery. Good Lord. Uh, and, and wait till you hear his story about uh, how the state of Wisconsin told him to go to Chicago to open up a brewery. Yeah. <laughs> 
All right, everybody. Thanks a lot for listening to the Experimental Brewing Podcast. You can catch all of our latest adventures and writings by going to our website, experimentalbrew.com. Don't forget to follow us on Twitter, where we're at Experimental Brew. We're on Facebook. Drew tells me we're on Instagram, so I guess I'm going to have to check that out someday. Or uh, whatever else we can find. Uh, I'll be hanging out on a lot of the beer discussion forums. If you want to ask us a question or suggest topics, recipes, experiments, or just rant and rave, you can email us at podcast at experimentalbrew.com. Or if you want to contact each one of us individually, I'm Denny at experimentalbrew.com, and he's Drew at experimentalbrew.com. Hey, don't forget to check out our latest adventures. We have a YouTube channel now. Where right now we're catching up on old, we're catching up on old episodes of the podcast, but we're also going to be throwing up some uh, fun random weirdo content up there. So go check out Experimental Brewing on YouTube. Really, a weirdo content. Who would have thought that coming from us? Okay, everybody. I just want to say before we go, remember to always brew experimentally or brew wacky, and we'll see you on the next episode of Experimental Brewing.